Welcome, friends, to another exciting edition of The George Sanders Show. Uh, this week, we will be discussing Spike Jones's recent film, Her, and tying it in with Ernst Lubitsch's almost 100-year-old film, The Doll. We'll also be picking our Cinema Central voice acting performance and talking about Paul Newman, whose uh, birthday is this week. With me, as always, is Sean Gilman. Hello, Sean. How are you? Hello, Mike. His birthday is actually today as we are recording this. But oh, my gosh. It, it, it will be in the past by the time this is posted. So That's right. Uh, well, happy birthday, Paul. We'll, yeah. we'll talk about some more later. How's it going? I know you're painting your house. You're getting ready to move. Yeah. You're not watching movies. You're, you're done watching movies. Yeah, yeah. Never, never again. <laughs> this, is, this is it. This is it. Breaking Her. news. <laughs> I will yeah. no longer watch any movies. <laughs> No, no, um, just, just getting the house ready to to sell. Hopefully, somebody will buy it. Yeah, anybody listening out there, if you are in the market for a house in the middle of nowhere, hey, we are we so, are in the heart of Federal Way, the the jewel <laughs> of the South Puget Sound. That's right. They've got a new Starbucks on the main drag. I I saw it the last time I went down there. That, that's true. It's it's a drive through. It's yeah. You're, you're moving. <laughs> It's a city on the grow. Yeah, uh, <laughs> there's rumors that we'll get a second bookstore soon. Oh, really? Yeah. Just in time for you to move away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I think we should get this show started with a discussion of Spike Jones's Her. Mr. Theodore Twombly, welcome to the world's first artificially intelligent operating system. We'd like to ask you a few questions. Okay. Are you social or antisocial? I guess I haven't been social in a while. How would you describe your relationship with your mother? Thank you. Please wait as your operating system is initiated. Hello, I'm here. Hi. Hi, I'm Samantha. Good morning, Theodore. Good morning. You have a meeting in five minutes. You want to try getting out of bed? (laughs) You're too funny. Okay, good, I'm funny. I want to learn everything about everything. I love the way you look at the world. How long before you're ready to date? What do you mean? I saw in your emails that you'd gone through a breakup. Well, you're kind of nosy. So what was it like being married? There's something that feels so good about sharing your life with somebody. How do you share your life with somebody? How are you? I guess I've just been having fun. You really deserve that. It's been a long time since I've been with somebody that I felt totally at ease with. All right, that was a little snippet from her, Spike Jones's uh, recent film. It's nominated for a bunch of awards. Um, and it's the story of Theodore Twombly, uh, played by Joaquin Phoenix, who is a guy who's kind of reeling from the disillusion of his marriage. Uh, and he ends up uh, getting a new operating system that is kind of... Uh, has the ability to evolve and you know think freely and what have you and that uh its name is samantha and uh voiced by scarlett johansson uh and he ends up falling in love with his operating system um and you know it's it's a spike jones-esque film i know we'll talk about uh, probably his entire his film as it were um, in this discussion but you know it definitely has the trappings of a Spike Jones film Uh, although this was the first film he has a sole writing credit um, on his first two films were written by Charlie Kaufman and then he collaborated on the Where the Wild Things Are screenplay but uh, Sean you are 
decidedly not a fan of the work of Spike Jones. I don't believe you've ever had many kind things to say about him, but uh, you bravely went to the Cineplex and you and you checked out her. Tell me, does this uh, change your opinion on Spike Jones? Does it reinforce your misgivings? Uh, how do you feel about her? I, I feel about her kind of the same as I feel about most other Spike Jones movies. Like, I, it's not so much that I hate him in like the the fiery way that you you hate Wes Anderson. <laughs> it's that I just find him really irritating. Uh huh. And and why is that? Well, his it's it's hard it's hard to explain. So we're gonna I'm gonna try and, and do this. Um, you better because uh, <laughs> why are we doing this show? If you don't? To to kind of get to this, I guess we're we're going to get to this right off the bat. Uh, I I wanted to to quote from something that uh, one of my old professors actually posted on his his blog recently about this movie. Um, he actually he said two uh, interesting things, and one was a, a quote that a friend of his said on on Facebook. That uh, that her is uh, a dystopia about how awful it would be if all the aspirations of his hipster urbanism actually came to pass. And uh, my old professor uh, uh, Stephen Shaviro says uh, this is definitely correct, though I doubt that this was what Spike Jones thought he was trying to say. That's fair. And that that aspect of the film I actually enjoyed, just kind of the the mustaches and the high waisted pants and the the every the entire world looking like an Apple store kind of thing I, I I thought that was uh was smartly dystopic if although I you know whether or not Spike Jones sees that as a bad thing is is up for debate but the uh the other thing that kind of gets to to what uh, I dislike about Jones in general is uh Chavero goes on to say so you're just stealing all of your ideas this week well what, I, I, I thought he put it well so I'm going to <laughs> to try and read it here let's and, get him and on he the says, show, and he's, <laughs> He would not. He would not. You're dead weight. Gilbert. He was. A, he was a very prickly professor. I liked him a lot. Uh, anyway, uh, he goes on to say, uh, but Jones does sort of, in a, in a, sort of inadvertently, uh, display the hollowness of the aching sincerity that has come to prominence in our recent white liberal, well-meaning culture as an impotent reaction formation against the hypercynicism of official capitalist realism. And he says he vastly prefers the post-irony films like uh, Joseph Kahn's Detention, which I haven't seen him do anything about, to the non-ironic sincerity of her. But they are both reactions against the same thing, the way that hip irony, or what Slaughterdyke Longardo called cynical reason, is the official affect, as it were, of there is no alternative neoliberal capitalism. This is, why I didn't go, this is why I didn't go to college. <laughs> Basically what I think he's saying is that the kind of sincerity that... that exists in Spike Jones films this kind of hard on your sleeve uh post ironic you know emotionalism is really really hollow and phony even though even while it's trying to pose as sincerity i it's, i don't necessarily agree completely with that i i think that might be symptomatic of this kind of this generation i don't think this is a spike jones problem i feel like this is no I, um, I i i agree i think there's there's a lot of it in in a lot of films of of jones's generation and and later uh but his his version of it just irritates me more than than pretty much anyone else <laughs> except except sofia coppola and i think a lot of of sofia coppola can be kind of lumped in the same in the same bag well yeah they were famously uh 
married for for a spell. Um, so yeah, there you go. They the only two star-crossed lovers. Yeah, the only character I like in Lost in Translation is the the Cameron Diaz character that we're supposed to hate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, her portrait of Spike Jones in that movie. Uh, I remember seeing it back when it came out. I mean, I haven't seen it since, but um, I remember seeing it and being like, "That's pretty unflattering." <laughs> um, yeah. and it was it was very obviously him. But um, yeah. well, I am a, I'm a bigger Spike Jones fan than you are. Um, although I'm for the most part, I'm always left wanting in terms of his um, feature films. Um, I think the best stuff he's done is his short film stuff, um, including his music videos. Um, I think the Beastie Boys Sabotage video is not only Spike Jones's greatest work, but also the greatest music video of all time. Um, and he's done a number of others like Bjork's uh, It's Oh So Quiet. And I think he works a lot better in, in small doses, um, especially when he doesn't have to kind of tell a story um, in a linear sort of way. You can just do things visually um, and stuff. Um, that being said, I am a huge fan of his debut film, uh, being John Malkovich. Uh, and I really liked Adaptation the first time I saw it, but I, on revisiting it a couple of years ago, I was, I was let down, um, as I was by Where the Wild Things Are, which was something I was very, very excited about. And I can appreciate what it's trying to do, but I don't think it executes it as well. Um, yeah. Well, I and, think, I think uh, both of his first two movies, uh, they're much more the personality of Charlie Kaufman than... That's what than I was going to get to. Jones. That's what, I, that's what I'm going to get to here, is that um, I, I had the same feeling with her as I did with all of his other films, where I was like really excited going into it. And I, you know, the the you know big concept of the whole thing you know kind of you know was it was you know exciting to me and um but then this movie in particular and you know we should be talking about her um it, it, it no no but here's the thing um when it's when it's charlie kaufman using these big you know these these high concepts to to tell like emotional things i i feel like the truth that charlie kaufman is getting to are more um complex and in interesting and and um original than something like her where um this movie and there's a lot that i like about this movie and i'll get to that too but, but um the basic you know the main point of the film it it just it it's no different than a lot of other relationship movies. It's just that he's talking to a, a, a person that's not there because all of the relationship stuff that happens in this is really kind of rote and um, very, very, very familiar. It hits every beat that you've seen time and again in, uh, in movies about, you know, um, romance and, and uh, couples and stuff. And, and, and yeah, I, halfway for, through this, for all the hmm? outrage, for all the outrageous premise, it ends up being, being pretty banal. It's very conventional, and which was really surprising to me. Um, and I, halfway through the film, I started to think to myself, you know, would people like this movie as much if, like, Scarlett Johansson was on screen? Like, would they would they be so hooked by it? Because I mean, this movie, um, I think it's got the highest score on Metacritic right now. You know, it's like a ninety-one. Um, and you know, it was the dissolve gave it, you know, their first five star review and stuff. Um, so this movie's got a, a lot of groundswell of support for it, but I was, I was watching it and I said, you know, 
if you just put her in there and just had the two of them talking, would this be as revolutionary or as wonderful as everybody says it is? And I and I don't think it is. Um, I think I, it, I think it's a hard movie to dislike. It's 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 pleasant. Yeah, and, well, it's, here's, it's, okay. it's it's a handsome movie. It's well acted by by everyone involved. It it looks nice. It's it's fine. It's just it's not it's not revolutionary and it's not mind blowing and it's not weird in the way that that Charlie Kaufman is. Right. Well, I think Charlie Kaufman he overthinks things. Um, so much that it it makes it really prickly and it makes it really immersive and and this one is not like that um there are a lot of things and i let me talk about the stuff i do like about this um i do love the world building that goes on in this movie and i think spike jones does a really great job of it you know he filmed a lot of this in china um and also i mean some of it in la too and it's supposed to take place in like a slightly futuristic los angeles um and all of the extra stuff that kind of goes into selling this, um, you know, future is is actually really cool. Like I, 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 the video game stuff, the two video games that are highlighted in the film are hilarious, and I think really inventive and, and funny. Yeah, um, I, I, I love the uh, the mom video game. Oh, that was such a! I would play that in a heartbeat. Because, it would, it's just yeah, that I I play that every day. That is my life. <laughs> um, that was great. And uh, I love that, you know, the world is kind of like if Ikea started making computers and Apple started making home furnishings, it kind of looks like that. And I really like, I mean, it looks aesthetically, it looks really gorgeous. And um, like you said, and I, you know, the the way he kind of thought through some of the, how devices will, you know, evolve or whatever with the little, you know, cute little earpiece that you just tap a button and stuff. Yeah, so I, I, li- I like the, really- the nice touch of, of all of the crowds of people walking down the street, all having their own conversations through their their technology and nobody actually looking at or talking to other human beings. Right. I thought that was uh, cool. Yeah, and and there's, you know, and, and like you said, the performances are great. Joaquin Phoenix is, again, you know, wonderful you know he's he's really really great at selling this and um scarlett johansson who you know i've 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 you know said some mean things about in the past i think she does a really solid job here um as this character it might be one of her better performances um in my opinion i actually, I actually uh i i like scarlett johansson I, i've never seen anything where i where i disliked her um and she she has a great voice and she performs it really well but I wonder if having uh, such a recognizable voice playing that part is to the film's detriment. Well, originally, you know, the film was uh, made with Sam- Samantha Morton um, on set doing the voice, and she was going to be the character. That's why she's called Samantha. And when Jones was editing it, he, he noticed that for some reason the voice just wasn't jiving with the with the way the plot was going, and so they, they got Scarlett. So, I, you know... I love me Samantha Morton, and I'm sad that <laughs> yeah, she was I, not. You know, I just think the the voice of somebody who we haven't seen, because as an audience member, as I'm listening to it, like Joaquin Phoenix has no idea what she looks like because she doesn't look like anything because she's just a voice. She's she's an, right. an operating system. 
but me in the audience, I know what Scarlett Johansson looks like. So when I'm hearing her voice, I'm imagining Scarlett Johansson. So this idea of, of him becoming attracted to his person, um, which should be entirely non-physical, I, I can't fall in love with her in the same way because I know what Scarlett Johansson looks like. No, I know what you mean. I mean, it's my, it's the same problem I have a lot when I'm, if I'm watching an animated film, um, you know, there's this tendency nowadays, you know, to get every star in the book to be in a, an animated film, even people who like people whose voices are just, you know, <laughs> that that's their thing. And, and it's really distracting when you've got Gilbert Gottfried playing a, a parrot or whatever. Yeah, um, but, but even, even beyond that, it's, it's so important for this film to work, for the audience to realize, to fall in love with Samantha at Samantha at the same time that that Theodore does, and in the same way he does. Otherwise, you know, it is just a, a generic love story. And I think I think it would play better if we have no idea what she would look like. If it's just a voice we've never heard before. I I, I can see that. Um, I think it would also play better if, like I said, this didn't just kind of hit the beats of every other relationship, you know, like, well, I think, I think this is an inherent problem, problem with the, the premise of the film. Like it, uh, for the first two thirds of the movie, it's a, it's a straight relationship drama that follows all of the expected beats of any, uh, any conventional relationship drama. And it's, it's one that, that is perfectly possible today. Because, you know, people fall in love on the internet all the time. People fall in love without physical contact. People have long-distance relationships where they're hundreds of miles apart and only communicate over the telephone. So, you know, they have this relationship in the same way that, that Theodore and Samantha do. So that, that first two-thirds of the movie is just normal. And the whole point of the movie is just to prove that you can have a normal relationship with a computer. And then in the final third, uh, spoiler alert, it goes off more following the logic of the 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 sci-fi uh, world that it's built, which is that as an AI computer, her knowledge is continually expanding, and she's you know vastly more powerful a brain than any human. So eventually, her consciousness expands to where she you know goes out and joins the universe and and leaves him behind. And there's like an allegory of like people growing apart in relationships, which is kind of dumb because it's a very cynical view of, of how relationships work and it's really very mopey on Spike Jones's part. It's like relationships can never work because people grow apart and I you know, whatever. Well, I want to talk about, I want to talk about that because uh, <laughs> the married man is offended. Um, I am because I, that, I mean, that's uh, such a, a, a solipsistic way of viewing a relationship. Like it's not her attention isn't entirely focused on on Joaquin Phoenix so it's what's the point of having a relationship anymore well I, I want to talk about that because you know she evolves to the point where she becomes um, it's basically she's polyamorous at this point she's you know she's in she tells him she's in love with like 4,000 people or something like that um, and yeah so do you but don't do you think Jones is saying that that's the advancement like that's that's where we will end up or if we, if we evolve we'll get to that point or is he is he making the argument for traditional one-on-one -on -one pairings of people because clearly if if Joaquin Phoenix is his you know um avatar as it were or whatever 
he cannot handle he gets incredibly jealous he gets you know very mopey as you as you said um, about the fact that she's carrying carrying on relationships with other people but she's just like hey i'm advanced i've moved beyond this you know silly pairing idea that people have created or whatever yeah i think i think the film rejects the idea that it's possible for people to grow together Well, that, even, that, there's no there's no example of that in in the film. Like all well, of the, all of the relationships that break apart break apart because one person grows past the other person. Uh, it's that's what breaks up Joaquin Phoenix and, and Rooney Mara. It's what breaks up Amy Adams and and her husband, and it's what breaks up uh, Joaquin and 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 Scarlett Johansson. And there's there's no there's no counterexample. There's no idea that that people can be in a relationship together. Well, yeah. Um, and then it and we, then it feels sorry for himself because of that. <laughs> well, my problem with the film is that you know, like you said, it's it's kind of a traditional relationship movie. Um, but then you say it, it kind of follows that tact in the final third. But even in the final third, it still follows these conventions. And, and I don't mean conventions of, of relationships necessarily, but conventions of like films about relationships where she, Samantha, ends up kind of falling for this like scholarly professor like um, operating system. And it's like, it's, it's, <laughs> I'm, at that point, you're supposed to be, you know, feeling, you know, sympathy for Joaquin Phoenix. But I'm just like, really, they're gonna trot out some like, you know, deep voiced, you know, older man who's gonna, you know, right? The uh, <laughs> the reanimated corpse of Alan Watts. <laughs> yeah, sounds like you're a film professor who you talked about a second ago. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, um, so yeah, that that stuff just didn't work for me. Um, there. But there were certain things that did work for me. I um, this I love this scene where um, she's she's upgrading herself, and so she's unavailable. And he, but he doesn't know that because he wasn't informed of it. And he goes to find her, and you know it says operating system unavailable or not found or whatever. And the scene of him running and and being, which kind of mirrors an earlier scene of him running, but joyously so, where he's first falling in love with her and stuff. Um, I thought Joaquin Phoenix was really really great in that scene and and really you know pushed it to the max as it were um unfortunately the scene ends with the really annoying conversation about her falling in love with 400 people um which is a shame but what, what, um, what did you think of of his job because that's it, it to me is like the most spike jones thing ever oh yeah he has um, he has this job where he composes beautifully handwritten letters for people who don't want to write the letters themselves. Right. Well, I mean, you know, clearly it, it's a parallel with the film. Um, and uh, what, the best thing about that um, job, that occupation, is the way that Spike Jones uses it as a cold open for the film, um, which I thought was really cool. Because it's, it's, you know, it, the film opens up with Joaquin Phoenix looking at the camera, you know, saying these platitudes. And it just holds it on him while he reads the whole letter. But, you know, as, as he's reading it and you, you just think he's, he's saying something sincerely to whoever he's looking at. Um, but then he, you know, he says something like that, that shows that his gender is actually female that he's talking about and uh, about something else. Um, I thought that was the coolest part about that. Um, was I that thought, it kind I of thought, pulled the rug out from under you? 
I thought the coolest part about that was was Chris Pratt, who plays uh, uh, Joaquin Phoenix's boss, who is the only person in the movie who seems to realize how ridiculous the whole thing is. Um, I want to talk about Chris Pratt because I, I think this is actually his character is the most interesting idea in the film. We see him in the beginning and he pointedly also has a mustache mm-hmm. um, like Joaquin Phoenix. And he he, um, he loves Theodore's he, he He champions him. He says that they're the best thing. And he... Um, you know, he, he has this motivational speech or, or whatever at, at some point in the film where he, he tells Joaquin Phoenix how much he values him as a person and how awesome he is. And um, and, and it's clear that, at least to me, um, that character, Chris Pratt's character, is um, kind of emulating Theodore um, in the beginning of the film. Like, I feel like the mustache is him mirroring him, mirroring him. Um, and also just like really wishing he, cause he's, he's not his boss. I think he's the receptionist cause he's sitting at a receptionist desk, but um, I, I he think was he's the boss. No, maybe he is. I don't know. Uh, no, uh, it doesn't matter. But anyway, but so he, he kind of is aspiring to be walking Phoenix for a long stretch of the film until he gets into his own relationship um, with a human, <laughs> um, one of the few human, human relationships in the film. Um, and then he kind of, kind of separates himself from that a little bit and he he seems to be a little more um on on a level playing field with Joaquin Phoenix at that point they both go on they go on a double date um together and um you know he's understanding and and you know supportive of the whole you know dating operating system thing but that's kind of once he gets into that real relationship he seems to kind of step into his own and I think I think that's pretty interesting I think that character is really cool um and I love seeing Chris Pratt period so yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I just, I just like, I like Chris Pratt. I like that everything he says, he says with a, with a twinkle, like you, you can't imagine him moping. No, he's, he's incredibly happy. Um, and you know, I mean, anybody that's seen Parks and Recreation knows that he, he can sell that better than anybody. <laughs> I, I <laughs> His also, enthusiasm. I also really liked Amy Adams in this. And, uh, I, I thought, uh, I thought she she was a pretty interesting character as well. She's uh, Theodore's friend, and you know she doesn't get a, a whole lot to do. Mostly, I don't know. Maybe she's not all that interesting. I just think she looks better in in this movie than she did in American Hustle. Oh yeah, she. I love Amy Adams. Um, I really do. I I I think she's great in almost everything. Um, she's fantastic in this. Uh, she's fantastic in The Master. She's amazing and enchanted um she really sells that movie um and even in american hustle which uh i hate more than uh life itself and i think we'll talk about it later in the show but uh well, despite you, you, the- you haven't seen life itself yet that's the, the <laughs> documentary from from sundance that's right but fuck that ebert guy uh- <laughs> well i'm willing to bet that you like life itself more than than american hustle all right. Um, <laughs> I, 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 anyway, even in something like American Hustle, she was. I could, I could see her trying to to elevate the material and elevate what she's been asked to do. And I think she's a really strong actress. And uh, even in a terrible movie like that, she's trying. She doesn't always succeed in that movie, and I'm, I think we'll talk about it later. Um, but uh, I love Amy Adams, period. Um, and I, I think her character is interesting, too, because she, 
you know, she's married to this kind of one note, wet blanket kind of jerk guy. Um, She shows these glimpses of, you know, wanting to be a filmmaker. She's artistic. You know, she creates video games and stuff. I I actually, I really liked her short film. Yeah, just filming her mother sleeping. And I I liked their their reaction to it. Like, they watched 10 seconds of it and they're like, is that it? Yeah. (laughs) She just... No, I... (laughs) Yeah, I think it's really cool. Um, it actually reminds me of something uh, my girlfriend would do. <laughs> Not filming me sleeping, though. God, God no. But yeah, um, nobody wants to see that. No, that's why I'm on a podcast. <laughs> no, no video, please. So, so uh, in terms of Spike Jones's four features, uh, which is your favorite? Uh, this is probably my favorite of them, and it's just kind of a, a yeah, it's. It's okay. It's good. Yeah. It's fine. I, I don't, I, like I said, I, I, I find this movie really hard to dislike. So I, I don't want to really want to say anything bad about it. Like uh, American hustle. I, I find it really easy to dislike. And, and this one is, is fine. Like if it was between those two movies for the best picture, I would be fully on board with, with her winning all the Oscars. Oh, and yeah. <laughs> but, uh, and you know, I, I kind of feel the same way about adaptation. Uh, it's 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 okay. I don't I don't mind it. Uh, the other two Spike Jones movies I did not like at all. So yeah. Well, how do you feel about the, the sabotage video? I like that. I like that. <laughs> I like I like the Bjork video. Did he do the human behavior video too, or is that Michelle Gondry? Uh, that's Michelle Gondry. Yeah, I like that video more than the "It's Also Quiet" video. Um, that's one where she's chased through the forest by a giant teddy bear. Yeah. 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 But yeah. And he's also done some, um, short films, non-musical, uh, or music video short films. You know, he did one with, uh, the, uh, Mark Gonzalez, the skater, um, the greatest skateboarder of all time, should I say, um, that I saw in an art installation like 10 years ago in San Francisco. And it was just a, you know, maybe two or three minutes short of a guy getting hit by a car, but it's awesome. It's really, really cool. Um, well, with that, it's hard hard to reconcile that kind of thing with the guy that makes these, these emo movies. I don't, it doesn't seem like the same person. Yeah. Well, like I, yeah, well, I, I think he's, I think he's better when he's working with somebody else's material. I, I like Charlie Kaufman because, uh, you know, I'm a misanthropic, you know, um, <laughs> friendless jerk. So, you know, that's just me. Yeah. Like <laughs> I, I, I don't really enjoy Charlie Kaufman, but I, I respect his, his willingness to be such a misanthrope and to just follow the, the crazy logic of its movie of his movies, wherever they go. Like I, I respect Charlie Kaufman more than I, I actually like him. Spike Jones. I just, I, there should be more there. He just kind of leaves me blank. Yeah. I, I hope to, you know, have Spike Jones one day, you know, create the movie that I think he's capable of <laughs> in my head. <laughs> So anyway, with that, that's our discussion of her. We're going to listen to some Robin today because Robin is totally freaking amazing. Um, So this song is called Call Your Girlfriend.
thanks, Robin, for that awesome jam. Uh, we're going to get to the middle segment of our show here, talk about some news. Uh, first of all, Sean, you wanted to say something about football? Go Hawks. <laughs> Uh, and with that, let's talk about some. <laughs> I don't understand uh, how you you're like you and my wife are the only people in Seattle who don't care about the Super Bowl. I don't know what's wrong I with ha- you. Um, I was born in Green Bay, Wisconsin, and uh, where you, you're kind of forced to watch all the time. And uh, my dad is a huge Packers fan. And uh, I think it was just growing up around football. It was just the most mind-numbing experience of my life, and I just rebelled against it. And I, I just, I think football is the lamest sport. <laughs> you know, I my, really do. I'm sorry. You know, my grandfather was a big Packers fan, and and my mom grew up being a Packers fan, also. Uh, not for any reason. They they were in Northern Idaho, and it's not it's not like Green Bay is close to that at all. But. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the in the '60s, there was a, a guard for the Packers named uh, Jerry Kramer, uh, uh-huh. Hall of Famer, and he was from Idaho. He uh, was like from nearby, so so they rooted for them. And I I think it didn't hurt that they were you know they won five championships in seven years or whatever. Right. Yeah. My grand my grandfather a front runner. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you ever go to Green Bay, um, which I don't recommend you do. Uh, unless you want to erect a statue saying this is where Mike was born. Uh, it's, it's pretty insane. Like it's the most like football heavy city ever because that's all they've got there. And well, so they, they, it's, every- it's the coolest thing that, that the, the city owns the team. Like it's the only publicly owned sports team that I know of. Yeah, no, I mean that aspect of it's really cool. Um, I'm just glad I got out of green Bay when I did. Cause um, it's like, it's everywhere. You can't escape it. So anyway, we've talked more about football than I ever hoped to. So let's talk about Quentin Tarantino. Uh, who's broke this week that Tarantino um, had finished his screenplay for his next, it was going to be another Western uh, after Django Unchained. And it was going to be called The Hateful Eight. And uh sounded like a Magnificent Seven type of film or what have you. And uh, Tarantino apparently handed the script to a couple of people Um some actors that he respects and likes and uh, a couple of agents, I guess. And somebody leaked it and the, the script got out and, uh, you know, other people started calling, begging to be, you know, cast in certain roles. And uh, Tarantino got really pissed off at this uh, because he considered it a betrayal. Um, and so he decided to shelve the movie, uh, which is, you know, it's unfortunate. I mean, you know, he'll do something else. That's fine. You know, the, I, I've avoided reading the script or any of that stuff. I did hear that he really wanted to film in 70 millimeter, which I think would be really cool. Um, I don't see why he can't do that with whatever he ends up filming anyway. Um, but uh, but it's interesting. I mean, I kind of appreciate Tarantino's desire to, to kind of be like, to step away from it because there's this tendency with the internet now where people things leak and people make snap judgments and they, you know, it's just this vicious like cyclone of speculation and blah, 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 blah. Um, So I can see, you know, being like, you know what, if you can't wait for it, fuck you, I'm not going to do it. So, you know, good luck to Tarantino, whatever he ends up doing, you know, I'm going to say something. How do you feel about it, Sean? 
Yeah, I hate everything about this story. <laughs> I hate uh, I hate the this this culture of like leaking screenplays or uh, just the whole coverage of the build up to a movie before the movie actually comes out. I I hate all of that. I I don't want to know anything about the movie until it's actually out, and I I certainly don't want to read the screenplay before the movie even gets made. And yeah, who does that? Well, have you have you ever read a screenplay? I have. I've actually read a Tarantino screenplay. Yeah. Um, I've, ne- I've know, never, I... never read a screenplay. I I don't imagine. I can't imagine wanting to. Why Why would I want to do that? And I mean, the only <laughs> the only the only reason to do it would be like an academic question of of you know how is the screenplay different from the the final product of the film, which you know might be interesting, but you can't do that before the movie's even made. Right. No. Well, I, yeah, to clarify, I've never read a screenplay of a movie that hadn't already been released. Um, I was at a, I believe it was a Walden books and they were selling the screenplay for death proof. It was on sale for like, you know, five bucks. And I said, death proof. I love that movie. And it was between death proof being in theaters and before it came out on DVD. And so I, I wanted to see, especially because I had heard that, you know, he'd cut it down and stuff. I wanted to see how it read on the page and I wanted to see, um, you know, what was missing, you know, see how he, he changed things around and stuff. It was an interesting experience. But yeah, other than that, I don't think I've ever read a screenplay. Um, I think uh, in maybe 1998 or so, uh before before the movie ever came out, I was in the uh, Pike Place Market for some reason, and in like one of like the little comic book stores in there. Yeah, they had a bunch of screenplays, and I remember seeing the the title of uh, "Oh Brother, Where Art Thou," uh, an adaptation of the Odyssey by the Coen Brothers. And I said, "Huh, the Coen Brothers are making a, a movie adaptation of the Odyssey. That sounds cool." And I did not read the screenplay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I yeah. A movie's a movie, you know, I mean, unless you were doing something academically, like you said, or you're comparing it to, you know, whatever. But yeah, this, 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 this world of speculation and, and also like having to be the first person to, you know, have the news, the scoop or the opinion about something is really silly, you know? And, um, I mean, clearly on this show, we, we tend to, you know, this is the second week in a row we've talked about a new film. Uh, we tend to talk about movies that are at least a decade old. Um, so we're not usually chasing um, the dragon, as it were. Um, yeah, but yeah, even, even, you know, even the new movies we're talking about, we're talking about a month after they came out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the latest scoop from the George Sanders show. Her is okay. <laughs> um, breaking. <laughs> breaking, yeah. You know, I, I, you know, I, I understand Tarantino's anger. I get it. Yeah. Speaking it's, of it's, anger, it's, an, it's annoying. I don't, I don't like the, the. Yeah, I'm kind of meh on the name of the movie, The Hateful Eight. Yeah, it sounds yeah, like it's, it, it's like such a Tarantino thing to do. Yeah, I, I agree. See, now you're speculating about a movie that doesn't exist. So, yep, yep, there you there go. I go. See, <laughs> this is why this is why this story is awful. <laughs> Because it's making me it's think true. about things that I don't want to think about. I would rather, it's, you know, I, I I still need to see Django Unchained again. My yeah, thoughts on it, that film have not resolved. You know, why why I'm not ready to move on to the next one. Yeah, I, I've resolved my, I, I've seen it twice. And I, you know, 
here's me speculating again. I, I was, you know, heard that this was uh, another Western, and I was hoping that it was Tarantino redeeming himself for uh, his weakest feature. <laughs> but anyway, let's talk about a film that's worse than uh, that by a long shot. Uh, you went to our old stomping ground, the Metro, uh, earlier this week to catch both her and uh, another Amy Adams Oscar contender, David O. Russell's American Hustle. Sean, do you want to talk about American Hustle for a second? Uh, <laughs> do you want to talk about the Metro for a second? Well, let's talk about American Hustle first. Uh, American oh. Hustle fucking sucks. It's terrible. Like it's I'm, so I'm bad. sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. Like I don't usually do stuff like this, but if anybody listening like likes that movie, fuck you, because that movie sucks. <laughs> like I don't. I like. I don't know how. I don't know how this movie. Like, doesn't it have the most Oscar nominations of anything this year? Like, I yeah, it got nominated in all four acting categories. It won the New York Film Critics Circle Best Picture. Yeah, I, this movie is the dumbest, most sloppy piece of garbage i've seen in in years like seriously like in years like the not even i don't even i can't even (laughs) i'm trying to temper myself uh one because you know i get so loud that i break microphones but um this movie is uh, just an absolute train wreck and um from the performances and like we were saying earlier amy adams I think she's, you know, a really great actress. And, you know, I think uh, Christian Bale's, you know, a solid actor. Um, You know, Jennifer Lawrence, she's okay when she wants to be. But anyway, everybody in this movie is freaking terrible, except for Louis C.K. They're they're so bad. And and it's not just that they're that they are bad at acting, it's that their their characters don't make any sense. Nothing nothing in this movie makes any sense at all. And it's it's just a, a collection of random scenes with actors doing actor things, whether or not it makes sense. There's just people being loud. It's it's uh, it's terrible. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> there's no there's no there's no coherent structure to the plot there's no coherent plot there's none of the the scams that are going on make any sense there it's not it's not a a believable world with believable people that act in a way that is recognizable as human actions uh well yeah and and also the movie <laughs> like in terms of construction like um the movie has the most obvious narration that comes up at random times for no reason, like telling you things that you're watching on screen as they're happening, but doesn't give you any insight into anything beyond that. Or, uh, you know, and then it disappears for like an hour of the movie just because, you know, whatever. And then, oh, it's here again for a second because Christian Bale had to tell you that he, I don't know, <laughs> like, I mean, it's insane. It's the, you, it's the most poorly paced thing I think I've ever seen. Like, it just it just lurches from one high to low to, to dead spot to frenetic action. Just It's just all over the place. There's no, there's no rhythm. There's no tone. It just, it's, it, it is a fucking disaster. And it's, it's anyone, a disaster. Anyone, anyone who looked at this and told David O. Russell, yeah, that's great, is just a hack, is a yes man who he needed better advice. Like, he did. This movie, I, is, this movie was not done. I feel like it was a rough cut. 
<laughs> it was like it was a rough cut of like the outtakes of them giving like their worst performances or something. Well, let me ask you this: Can you can you pinpoint your least favorite moment in this movie? I can pick two. That might have been uh, it. Might have been Bradley Cooper's home life when we first see that. Everything about that I hated. <laughs> yeah, that's really bad. Uh, pretty much anything involving Jennifer Lawrence's character doing random shit for no apparent reason. Yeah, she's she's really bad here. Um, and and that actually made me think of a third point that I that I hated. Okay, so my three. Most hated moments in American Hustle. Jennifer Lawrence singing Live and Let Die to the camera for no reason while she's like cleaning the house. Um, while well, she's to, doing that because she's set up uh, Christian Bale to get killed <laughs> for some reason. And then apparently she did it just to motivate him to right. steal stuff. Because she, she read a self-help book and it's, yeah, it's, oh my God, because, terrible. Because, you know making the mob think he's an FBI informant is not going to get him killed. Although she's singing live and let die. So she knows it's going to get him killed, but really, no, it's not. It's just motivation. It's terrible. Two, Bradley Cooper throwing a hissy fit in the apartment of Amy Adams, like where he, I mean, I, I can't believe a professional actor who gets paid money to do stuff would be so, amateurish and bad but he he's like a two-year-old who you know doesn't get to watch more sesame street or something like he just he just randomly starts screaming everything about that character is horribly conceived and i think there, there 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 should have been more of the of like him snorting coke and just being like an insane cocaine addict lunatic because that's what he acts like but it's not there he beats the shit out of his superior officer in the FBI I know, I know. And, and nothing not happens. Get, yeah, he does not get reprimanded at all for it. The worst part of this movie, though, and I think it's because I respect her more than most everybody else in this movie. Uh, Amy Adams, after taunting Bradley Cooper with sex in a, in a public toilet, then gets, sits on the toilet and for no discernible reason starts either cackling like a, like a witch in like a, in like a, in like a horror movie or she's, uh, or she's really like, she's bawling or I can't even tell what she's doing, but it cuts to her sitting on the toilet, looking up at the sky, screaming her head off. And then it cuts to the next scene. Like, what the fuck was that? I have no idea. <laughs> this That's... movie is absolutely atrocious, and it's going to win every Oscar. And I'm going to just it's, stab it, myself with a pen. It's not. At this point, I, having actually seen the movie, I can't believe it will win. It's going to win. I'm sorry. It's going like, to win. I, I, I didn't like Argo last year. I thought I thought Argo was, was kind of sloppy and, and dumb and generic. But, I can, but it, I, can, I can see why Argo won. And American Hustle might have some of those same things going for it. But Argo was competent. It was. This is, was. this is an incompetent film. It's incredible. Yeah. Uh, you know, but this, this is going to win because it's actors acting, it, you know, in, in scare quotes. I mean, it is, you know, it's, it's histrionic. It's, it's, not, it's, it's 
12, 12 years a slave will we'll beat this. It, it has to. It well, has to. I, we'll reconvene in a month and we'll see, we'll see how we do it. I mean, I hope you're right. Cause um, this is not only the worst film nominated, it's the worst scene of 2013. And I think I've seen 20, 20 something movies at this point. Um, it's, it's the worst of that long. Like you said, I thought Argo was pretty mediocre. I, I did not like the artist. I did not like the King's speech. Uh, but this movie is worse than all of them. If you took all of the worst elements of all three of those movies and made a movie, it would make more sense, even though they're completely different movies than American Hustle. The only saving grace is Louis C.K. That's all. That's all it is. But that's that. Yeah, it's it's terrible. But but what is not terrible is is the new Metro. Yeah. So you, you segue. You, yeah. So we used to work at a landmark theater that was. Uh, it was what operational since 1989, and when we were working there, it still looked like 1989. It was beige walls. It was uh, it looked like an office building, and uh, but now they're bought they're bought out by Sundance, and uh, and you went, so it, it's nice, huh? It is. They've they've kind of uh, they weren't allowed to like structurally change any of the inside, so it's the same. It's the same ten screens and the same ten auditoriums, and the the basic layout of the lobby is pretty much the same. But uh, they kind of redone. Re, they've redone all of the the surfaces. So instead of like the dentist office beige that it was before, it it you know it's this nice kind of green and and copper. Uh, interior that that it looks uh it looks classier and it looks more movie theater ish than than the metro did and inside the auditoriums which were which are all pretty small this is is one of the first multiplexes in seattle so it's like these really tiny theaters like when we were there the biggest the biggest auditorium was what 185 seats yeah Um, i think it was even less than that i think it was like 160 but yeah uh roughly roughly uh but what they've basically done with the auditoriums is is take out half the seats, and the seats are are bigger. the 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 floor has been uh, kind of leveled, so it's not it's not quite stadium seating, but there's there's more steps to it instead of just a a shallow plane like the like the metro was. And the seats all have like a, there's like a pair of seats, and then there's like a little table in between. So it's all like in in two seat sections, and all of the seating is is assigned. Which mm-hmm. is actually kind of cool. So it's it's a much more modern theater environment, and it's uh, they serve alcohol there. So the the whole theater is twenty one and over, which means no no kids and no teenagers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I I have my own problems with that. I, you know, I I tend to burn bridges, so I don't know if I'll ever be back. But uh, maybe one of these days I'll go down to the old metro and and, and check it out. It's nice. It's uh, it's a it's a pleasant uh, movie watching environment. It's it's really weird though being there because I, I worked at the Metro for for just over ten years, and so it's like uh, I don't know if you've ever gone back to a house or an apartment that you used to live in, but somebody else lives in it now, and, and your stuff isn't there anymore, but the same structure is. Right. So, so when you're when you're looking around at it, you're seeing. You're seeing the place as you remember it, and the place as it is now simultaneously, and that's kind of what what uh, what effect going back to the metro has for me. Like it's 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 old and it's new, and it's it's just it's unsettling. 
<laughs> I wonder if they found the boogie board I hid in the ceiling uh, when they were remodeling. <laughs> I think the ceiling is they... the same. It's probably in there somewhere. I bet, I bet they found some really odd things in there. There was some graffiti that I, I had written in uh, the supply closet. I wonder if that's still there. Anyway, <laughs> I used to take naps in there. Uh, anyway. Uh... <laughs> but yeah, it, it, it's nice. You, you, you should go. And any, uh, any movie people in, in the Seattle area, I, I recommend it. I give it my full endorsement. It's got the Gilman... The Gilman bump is coming. Yeah, the the George Sanders seal of approval. That's right. All right, so, you know, speaking of uh, watching movies, what's Mike been watching? <laughs> Wait, is that what we're talking about on this show? <laughs> movies? <laughs> well, I've spent the last week and a half or so kind of running a marathon trying to, to get to all these Oscar picks, you know, in time for the ceremony. Uh, but I'm not going to talk about those because we're going to have an Oscar show in a month and stuff. Um but I've supplemented it with some other films that I've been meaning to get to for a while. And uh, it's it was a wonderful surprise uh, to finally get around to uh, Orson Welles' Mr. Arkadin, uh, or Mr. Arkadin, excuse me, as it's pronounced in the film, um, which is a film that I've wanted to see since Criterion put out that um, comprehensive uh, triple disc box set of it, uh, what, six, seven years ago? And, yeah, uh, quite a while ago. Yeah, and it it was always kind of a when I was a little you know felt a little daunting because there were so many different versions of it out there and stuff. But finally, I bit the bullet and I watched the comprehensive cut, the one that kind of tried to follow Wells's you know idea for how the film should be played, um, kind of like they did with Touch of Evil um, in the late '90s. And um, this movie's fantastic. I mean, it really is. It's it's up there with. Uh, I mean. Every Wells movie is great, and it's another great Orson Wells movie. <laughs> um, it's kind of like a mix between, and this is kind of a pithy way of saying because I think it, 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 there's more to it than this. But it's kind of a, it's kind of a uh, combination of the Third Man and Citizen Kane in terms of points, um, but it's done in that Wells like '50s super low budget uh, style um, where he, you know does the voices for everybody practically he, he you know he edits it um himself and it's it's just a it's it's a solid freaking movie what do yeah. you think about that film? i <laughs> i really like it i i have that that criterion set but i actually saw uh mr arkad in, in the theater in uh in boston at the the brattle theater in in harvard square uh in, which cut did they run i don't remember they would, this was in like the spring of 1998, I think. And, uh, it was really cool. It, it's, it's really weird and it's, it's fantastic. Like I, there's, there's like a, a right way to make a movie really kind of slapdash and sloppily. And, and Mr. Arkadin is an example of the good way to do it as American Hustle is an example of the bad way to do it. Well, that's, that's a very good point because um, this movie is it, the first like five ten minutes. It, it's kind of distancing because the voices don't match up with the lips talking, and the cuts are really weird. Where like the music will be playing, but then when it cuts to something in the same scene but like a different shot, the music stops, and and it's very herky jerky. But once you get in its rhythm, it's you know it's so exhilarating. I mean, Orson Welles's filmmaking is just 
so full of life and imagination that, you know, just a, just a shot of someone walking down a hallway will just look like the most expressionistic, you know, beautiful, dark thing you could possibly imagine. Um, and it all, I mean, the whole film is, is full of stuff like that. And I, I just, I really responded to it. And, you know, Orson Welles is one of those directors like Hitchcock or Kurosawa that you, you know, at least for me, you know, I kind of watched a bunch of his films when I was first getting into movies, like really into movies. Um, and then I kind of, and partially because a lot of his films are kind of harder to find. I, I kind of, you know, he kind of fell by the wayside once I'd seen the big ones like Touch of Evil and F for Fake and Citizen Kane and stuff. Um, but this reinvigorated me to to get back into to catching up with those ones that I haven't seen yet um, and revisiting some of the ones that I have because um, he really is one of the greatest filmmakers ever. And people that say, you know, Citizen Kane or Bust <laughs> um, are missing out because... There's some great, great stuff in his uh, later career. Absolutely, yeah. Well, Wells is great. He's he's long been one of my favorites, and it's it's funny that that you should bring him up because as we uh, move to talk, pick our uh, cinema central voice acting performance. Uh, Orson Welles was actually my pick, and it's for, for Transformers. It's not for his his final film role as the uh, the voice of Unicron in Transformers the movie. <laughs> No, it, it's for the uh, the narration of the Magnificent Ambersons, which is a Wells movie that you haven't seen yet. It's it's yeah, it's one that I've avoided because I think it's just going to make me sad. And it will. <laughs> it it will make yes. you sad because you know obvi- obviously it was it was taken away from him and re-edited and his original footage trashed and a, a terrible ending was put on it. But what 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 does exist of the film that that Wells uh, uh, made is really really good, and you owe it to yourself to to watch it, even knowing that it's not in in the perfect ideal form that that right. it might have been had he been able to to edit it on his own. And and one of the the great elements of it is is the narration from done by Wells. Like he, he doesn't appear on screen in the film. He just kind of introduces the story and sets the scene and, and tells us about the characters. And it's uh, based on a Booth Tarkington novel. And his, his voice is just amazing. Obviously he, he started in radio and, and, and throughout his career, he did a lot of great voiceover work, not just in cartoons, but also in, and last month, like uh, he's like the narrator in Nicholas Ray's uh, King of Kings movie, I think, and he does a lot of of that kind of stuff, just kind of the voice of God type thing. But it's it's a little more relaxed in in the Magnificent Ambersons. There's kind of a, a, a jolliness to his description of the world and kind of a, a sardonic view of the the kind of provincial provincialisms of this Indiana town and its uh, its small world. And and that all comes across from from Wells's voice, and it just kind of sets the 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 tone for what we're going to see. That's not quite a melodrama and not quite a comedy, but it's kind of somewhere in between. You know, you along with some other people on Letterboxd uh, harangued me for avoiding it, and I I, I will see it. I, I have read the book, um, so I've got that you know in my brain as well. Um, and yeah, I, I think I'm a little more accepting nowadays than I was in the past where I used to be, you know, a purist in terms of stuff like that, where I think I can watch the film and, and you know, take something out of it from, you know, what is there. And, and I should. I really should. 
Uh, my pick uh, for essential voiceover uh, or, or voice acting performance, as it were, um, is Orson Welles' Unicron in Transformers. No, <laughs> um, mine is from a cartoon, which is no surprise uh, coming from me. But uh, the person I'm picking might be a bit of a surprise. I am picking Vin Diesel. Uh, for his performance as the Iron Giant in The Iron Giant. Um, and it's really just for one word that he says in that movie at the very end um, that even when I'm thinking about it now, I'm welling up because it, it it's just it's incredible. I mean, it's just... Um, the Iron Giant is, you know, a uh, Brad Bird film, his first film, um, did for Warner Brothers before he went on to do, you know, his films for Pixar and now doing live action stuff and uh it's it's set in the 50s it's got you know cold war paranoia to it and this um this boy befriends a robot from outer space and uh actually very fitting for this show <laughs> with the doll coming up here and uh artificial intelligence and uh it's about the this war machine learning how to be you know empathetic and and be nice and uh the character that he's taught blade is superman and uh which it all comes to a head at the end of the film and uh i'm i'm you know i haven't seen the fast and the furious movies i haven't seen triple x you know but uh vin diesel gets a lifelong pass for me for just that one word that he says at the end of the Iron Giant, because I think it's absolutely amazing. And, you know, the credit really goes to Brad Bird for writing such a fantastic three-act story that culminates in just the most beautiful way possible, and it's absolutely devastating. So I'm going to go watch Iron again tonight. <laughs> yeah, I, I really should watch it again. I've, I've only seen it once, but you talk about it constantly. So I, I, I feel I need to watch it a second time. I'm not the one. Uh, well, another person, you know, that uh, has, has done voice work or did voice work um, as a final role, uh, Paul Newman, who is our person of the week. He, he voiced Doc Hudson in uh, the first Cars film. Uh, and he was a lifelong racing fan. He loved cars and stuff. Um, so let's talk about Paul Newman, you know, in celebration of his life, his, his acting work, his lemonade and pasta sauce, the whole thing. Paul Newman's great. Paul Newman is great, and and, <laughs> and we are, are very big fans of his salad dressing and, and pasta sauce in, in, the, in the Gilman household. We use Newman products whenever whenever possible. I like him a lot as, as an actor. I mean, I, I, like, I like young Paul Newman, but I think I prefer old Paul Newman. Paul Newman from, like, Nobody's Fool and The Hudsucker Proxy and, and The Verdict. Which, uh, which Paul Newman do you prefer? Um, uh, that's a good question. I mean, I do like, you know, when, I mean, he was a gorgeous man. I'll just say this. And he, and he aged very well, but you know, he, when he got to do these kind of, and he, we talked about it during Hudsucker Proxy where he got to play these roles that maybe he didn't get to play as often when he was younger and blue eyed and, you know, handsome and stuff. Um, you know, playing the villain in something like that. Um, but at the same time, you know, I, I love him in that early stuff. I mean, I know I'm a bigger fan than you are of Cool Hand Luke, but I think that's one of his greatest roles. I think he really sells that character, um, which is a very difficult thing to do because that character, you really have to buy into what he's selling and or what he's not selling, as it were, if you're talking, taking the character 
you know, for his uh, beliefs or whatever. But uh, man, yeah. that's a tough one. I, I like him I, a lot in uh, in uh, in HUD in in the Hustler. Oh, he's fantastic, and 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 then uh, Butch Cassidy. Yeah, I I prefer I prefer the Sting. I do too. I I'm a I'm a I'm a Sting fan, but uh, you know the the pairing of him and Redford um, yeah. was always great. You know um, that was that was a really good pairing of people. So yeah, I mean Paul Newman, he's 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 the man, and uh, you know he had a. He had a really singular career because, you know, it's I think you said this during. Did you say this during Hudsucker? Do you talk about it for something else where, you know, sometimes people are really good in the beginning of their career and then they kind of fizzle out or vice versa. They kind of come into their own. But he was consistent and he was a stand up guy, you know, um, outside of his uh, acting work. Have you ever seen Slapshot? I've always wanted to see Slapshot. That's Walter Hill, right? Yeah. Uh, Yeah. George Roy Hill. Or George Roy Hill, that's right. Right. Um, um, it's uh, the hockey movie with, with Paul Newman. It, it is fantastic. It's one of the, those great 70s sports movies, like The Bad News Bears or something, that's uh, unimaginable now. Right. Yeah, I, I really, really do want to see that. Uh, what do you think about his, uh, his film with Hitchcock, Torn Curtain, which is kind of an interesting film for both of them? I like it. I like it more way. than its reputation. I think... Uh, I think there's some really, really fun uh, suspense elements to it. It's odd that it, it tries to make you think that, that Paul Newman is a spy because we know right. that that's not possible. <laughs> right. And it kind of plays with that in, in kind of interesting ways. But, but mostly there's just, in, in a lot of those late, late Hitchcocks, the, the big uh, value for me is just in the construction of the suspense sequences. They're just really well done. And that, yeah, that's an example absolutely. of that. Yeah, it, it's an interesting movie. It's, yeah, I, I mean, it's not close to the best for either person, but um, I agree with you. I like it more than its reputation. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's an odd, you know, um, who's it? Uh, Julie Andrews, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, an odd, it's an odd pairing for a Hitchcock movie. <laughs> I guess no more weird than Doris Day, but... Um, but anyway, happy birthday, Paul Newman. You were uh, a totally awesome. Absolutely. Okay, so let's, <laughs> uh, let's move on to our second movie this week. It's uh, Ernst Lubitsch's 1919 film, The Doll. Thank you. 
All right, so our second movie this week, uh, like I said, is Ernst Lubitsch's The Doll, and that was not music from The Doll. The The movie is, is silent, and uh, that was actually music from a ballet called Capelia that was written by Leo Delib, and it is based on the same story by E.T.A. Hoffman that The Doll is based on, and they're, they are both, both the ballet and the story, and the movie are about a automaton who a young man falls in love with it's a a basically a robot of a of a woman a 19th century robot an, an automaton like a, a giant wind-up doll that's a person and you may uh, be familiar with uh, Capalia even if you've never heard of it if you've seen uh, the Powell and Pressburger movie The Red Shoes uh, there's a sequence when uh, when Vicky Page is in uh, her ballet star mode. There's a, like a long montage sequence of the various ballets she's starring in, and one of them is Capalia. It's and she is playing the automaton. And uh, this this song that we just heard is actually, uh, I believe, the 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 part of the ballet that we see in the Red Shoes. And it's also a sequence in in Powell and Pressburger's film. Uh, uh, Tales of Hoffman, which is based on uh, an uh, Offenbach opera, which is based on E.T.A. Hoffman's short stories. And one of the stories in the opera and in the movie is the Capalia story or the doll story. So that All is why, ties together. That is why we played that music. <laughs> and the the really uh, odd coincidence here is I had no idea that the doll was based on on the Hoffman story and that it had anything to do with Capelia, and just by coincidence I happened to be in the middle of uh, Hoffman's The Sandman, a section of which is the story of the automaton girl and the young man who <laughs> falls in love with her, and that is actually the the part of the story that I just started reading the other day. So it was turning in. <laughs> It was very odd for me. After about 20 minutes of this movie, I'm like, wait a minute, I know this story. <laughs> so I actually had to go look it up, and, and that is where I learned all of that about the ballet and the red shoes and, and all of that. And it all ties together, and it's all one thing. So I thought that was neat. <laughs> <laughs> it was, I was part, like, Twilight Zone episode, part... I don't even know what that was. That was... Uh... Impressive. Well, well doing, thanks I'm for doing, that. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm doing a, a podcast on F.W. Murnau next week, so I've been trying to read up on German Expressionism and and Hoffman and you know 19th century German literature in general, but but Hoffman in particular were very influential on German Expressionists, and so that's why I was reading Hoffman. So there you go. I just like to say, if anybody listening hasn't seen the Red Shoes. Uh, you should go see the red shoes because it's amazing. Yeah, that is all. <laughs> uh, but, well, let's talk let, about the doll. Yeah, let's talk about the doll. Um, the The story is uh, uh, a young man doesn't want to get married, but his uncle wants him to. He wants him to be his heir, and he offers him three hundred thousand dollars or what have you uh, if he will get married. Uh, the guy runs away to a monastery where he hangs out with a bunch of fat men who convince him that if he gets married, they can, he can give them the money and he doesn't have to marry an actual woman. He can marry a doll and they show him the ads of this inventor who has created very lifelike automatons. So he goes to the inventor 
and tries to to buy the automaton so he can marry it to fool his uncle to get the money to give to the fat monks. But while he is, you know, inspecting the uh, the the various dolls, the doll maker's daughter inadvertently breaks a doll that looks exactly like her and then poses as hit to cover up the fact that it's broken and she's the one who ends up marrying the young man who's afraid of women. And then they fall in love and that's the end of the movie. <laughs> uh, one, one bit of clarification, this is very minor, but she doesn't break the doll. The, uh, the horny young assistant of the True. doll maker dances with it and knocks it over, destroying it. Yeah, but, um, but and we should also mention that the, the, the doll... The, uh, she abets the crime there. She does. And, and we should mention that the reason she composes the doll is that the um, doll maker, whose name is Hilarious, um, he, he models this doll in particular after his daughter. So they look identical. Um, that is correct. Yes. So this movie... Uh, I had seen before. You were the one that suggested it after you uh, read my little capsule review of it because I saw it um, in the middle of last year and, and really, really enjoyed it. And um, what I, I, there's so much I like about this movie. Um, but for me, it gets you from, from the very opening, which shows this... It, 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 it's, really, it's really cool. It's, <laughs> it's kind of, it's, in a way... It's Lubitsch himself. In the opening shot. It, well, and also, in, in a way, tying this in with her, it kind of, you know, we mentioned in her, it opens with this kind of unexpected intro from Joaquin Phoenix where you think he's being sincere, but he's actually reciting a letter. And this does the same thing where Lubitsch playing this character, since it's called the doll, you think this is the doll person because he pulls out this box and he sets up this little toy village and he puts these little toy people in it. Um, but then it turns out that then we're going to enter this make-believe world because then it cuts to that um, little toy playland, but now it's a full, fully realized set, and the characters that we see throughout the film then appear in this very make-believe, you know, um, you know, cardboard set world um, that this movie takes place in, and that's one of the things I really, really like about this movie is that it plays up the playfulness and and just the fact that this is all fake yeah, <laughs> and i really really like that yeah it really plays up the artificiality of the world and and the doll came out at the same time and and in the same place as the cabinet of dr caligari which is kind of the uh the uh the film that sparked german expressionism as a movement and that also has really artificial and expressionist uh sets but the doll is is a completely different kind of artificiality. Like in 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 Caligari and and a lot of the expressionist movies, it's it's all about like horror and shock and just weird distortions of reality. Uh, but in the doll, it's just it's playful and it and it's fun. It's like expressionism as done by Mister Rogers, and <laughs> it's it's just so charming. And it it reminded me a lot actually of of Wes Anderson. Who has has a similar kind of dollhouse approach to a lot of his films, like like the life. uh, Think of like the the cutouts in in of the boat in the Life Aquatic that are you know explicitly dollhouse designed. And yeah, I mean, there's no like literal dollhouse in the doll, but just the the way that it's all in a make believe world. And uh, another film that is 
totally different from a totally different kind of filmmaker, but actually similarly has that very DIY playfulness to it is uh, Eric Romer's uh, Percival Legalois, which is like an Arthurian night tale, but it's all on these like little sets that are like astroturf and like plastic trees. And it's, it's really fun also. That's cool. But it's a very unusual film for Romer. It's, It's an unusual film for everyone, but but anyway, yeah, I, I mean, I, I really, I really like this, this aesthetic approach and, and just this kind of view of, of film as, as play. It's got a lightness to it that Spike Jones gets in his videos, but we haven't seen in any of his features, I don't think. Yeah, I, I would say being John Malkovich has the most uh, elements. But, but, but that to movie it. is so dark. And I know and it's so great. bleak and and so misanthropic. Like Michelle Gondry kind of gets at it at times, but he's like way too whimsical and and just kind of goofy. Right. Well, but you know, I think I think Lubitsch gets it just right, where it's 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 fun and it's playful, but it's not you know twee. Right. To no, use absolutely. A, a word that I don't know the definition of. <laughs> Uh, the definition, if you look up the definition of twee in the dictionary, it'll be Joaquin Phoenix's mustache. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, uh, uh, yeah, this movie is playful and it's, and it's, it's really, really funny. Um, there, are, um, there's, there's a moment where there are these two horses that are actually just guys in a horse costume that, uh, carry this, you know, carriage, um, and it, and it takes the, um, the couple, the newlyweds to the monastery and uh, hilarious is trying to track them down because he finally figures out that his daughter is actually the one that left with this guy, not the doll. And he goes up to the, the carriage driver and he says, I need to find them. And, and, and can you give me a ride? And the carriage driver says, hang on a second. And he goes and he like con- converses with his horse and his horse says through a title card, I'm too tired. I, I can't do that. <laughs> you know, it's just like, you know, the fact that he included that in this, you know, barely over in an hour uh, feature is, is really fun and, and hilarious. Um, no pun intended with the name there. Um, and I also really like, um, you know, he, you know, he, it's a pretty big slap of the face towards the idea of like organized religion. When you see these, um, these monks in their monastery um, and it, and it's, it's very cleverly done where he shows, in like a, an iris, you know, the main monk sitting there and he's, he's kind of eating a little bit. And, and I think a title card says like, you know, we must enjoy what we can or something like that, you know, kind of implying that they don't have a lot to, um, to eat or whatever. And then it pans out and all the monks are fat and they're all eating just like this huge feast of like pork knuckles and stuff. And, but they have to maintain this illusion that they are very, you know, strict and chaste and you know <laughs> it's really funny yeah what it, uh this has some similarities to uh to buster keaton's seven chances uh yeah my, my it, it, especially in like the the one one of like the first big uh chase sequences where uh it's first announced that the that the boy needs to get married and so uh 40 maidens line up outside of his uh his house and then they uh they all chase him through the streets 
and there's a it's a really funny chase sequence in that it's it's just one shot of like the city square and he runs like down some steps and then all of the women follow him and he runs around like a fountain and they just do all of these like like crazy like s patterns and curly coups all around the set and everyone always following in line nobody ever takes a shortcut it's just right. all of these lines and it goes on and on and on and it's like a um I don't. I don't know who said this. I think I want to say it's like some, uh, uh, maybe like a Simpsons person on with like the 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 uh, sideshow Bob stepping on rakes gag uh, in uh, in Cape Fear, which is that uh, the first couple of times you do a joke, it's funny, but after like the third or fourth time, it stops being funny. But then when you do it like the eighth and ninth time, it becomes funny again. And that's yeah. what this chase sequence is. Like it's initially funny and then it gets tedious, but he, he lets it go on for so long that it comes back around to be just hilarious again. Yeah, it's it's really great. And um, the editing of it too, because he, he cuts, you know, he does these these cuts so that they can go from, you know, they, they run across and they leave like the right side of the frame and then it cuts and then they, they come in through the left side of the frame again. And it's very much like, um, it's like you said, Simpsons, but it's kind of like, um, kind of like a Looney Tunes kind of gag or something like that, where, you know, they're playing with the spatial qualities of the, of the, the form, you know, and having them come from different angles and stuff. And it's really funny. Um, what, what do you make of his, of his horror of women and his, his, uh, unwillingness to, to interact with any of them? Well, I can't tell if I, I can't tell if he's just asexual or if he's homosexual. Um, there are elements of it that make it seem like he may, you know, swing the other way. Um, the way he carries himself, he's, you know, um, but he's and, almost and immediately the, infatuated with the doll. Like he gives he gives I, her a kiss, and and she gives him a kiss, and he's very excited by that. And well, I don't think he's I, the infatuation comes later. But I, I think in the early scenes, they really play up his absolute horror of women. I mean, he is just like terrified, and like he even when he's looking at the other dolls in the beginning. Um, yeah, they he has, he has a great per- line about them. Uh, uh, they they start doing like a like a can can type thing, like kicking their legs up, and he says, "Oh, how rude!" Yeah, he, he's totally <laughs> afraid of of even fake dolls that may be you know sexual or you know um, too forthcoming or something like that. So obviously, by the end of the thing, yes, like you said, he ends up falling for her, and and they. Uh, consummate their relationship as it were um but in the beginning he you know i think he's more asexual where he's just absolutely like petrified and he's very he's a prude and he you know he doesn't want any of that hanky panky stuff going on but yeah and it's 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 that that leads him to desire uh an automaton as as a wife as opposed to an actual woman and i you know i think we can infer some kind of uh statement about sexual politics from that, that that this kind of misogyny leads to the desire for a woman that doesn't have a personality of her of her own and then when when he marries the doll and then it it turns out that she actually does have a mind for his own of her own uh it turns out that he really likes that well what i really like about this is um how lubitsch when she is playing the doll um or, you know, she's in the role of the daughter playing the doll, should I say. Um, 
the flashes that we get of her personality throughout. And she's very, you know, she's strong-willed. She's very um, opinionated. She's she's very playful. She's really, you know, goofy. And um, she wants to have a good time and stuff. And those are all the things that scare these men or whatever. Um, but it's really cool to see this woman kind of embody all of that, you know. when But then whenever someone looks at her, she has to go back to her rigid, you know, I am a robot kind of thing. But, um, yeah. you know, she's... I thought that was a really great performance. Like, she does a lot with, like, her, her bug eyes and just facial expressions and just, like, kind of quick uh, uh, sidelong glances. And, and she's just, like, she's constantly on the verge of cracking up. Which is yeah. is just fantastic. I I thought she was uh, terrific. It's a uh, Ossie Oswalda played uh, Ossie the the doll. Yeah, and she did it. She does great. a really great job. I also really like the um, like I mentioned the the young apprentice of uh, Hilarious the toy maker or doll maker. Um, he's this kid who has kind of like a face of like a fifty year old man. <laughs> um, a very very kind of. Uh, I don't know, world weary and a repeated gag in the, in the thing is, I mean, the kid's like maybe 10 years old or something. Um, but a repeated gag throughout the film is he gets despondent. And so he tries to kill himself, which I think is really funny. Like he says, when he sees Aussie kissing, uh, Lancelot, the, the main character, he, he sees that from a window and he was in love with her or, you know, he was, infatuated with her i don't know if he was in love he was lusting after her um and he sees her kiss him and and it goes to a title card that says oh woe is me or something like that and then he tries to drink like paint so that he can die um and he does that a couple of times which is just great and then it comes to this point where um he's been found out that you know he swapped the the daughter for the doll and uh hilarious you know is is furious with him and and tries to um to beat him and you know repeatedly slapped this kid throughout the film Um, but this kid goes on this completely anarchic um explosion throughout this house and he he runs into the kitchen he starts throwing down the you know um dishes and breaking everything and um putting a pot on hilarious's head and then and then once again he threatens to kill himself by jumping out a window um but then it turns out it's just a first floor window but it you know it's a really interesting character yeah that that scene with like the the breaking of the plates is uh, a, it, it's hilarious because it's just a big stack of plates, and he's not actually throwing them at the at, at hilarious. He's just kind of throwing them on the ground, and they're like cowering in fear. And it's just like plate crash, plate crash. Um, that reminded me of uh, of Sons of the Desert, where there's a similar kind of uh, destruction of the right. kitchen, and uh, also the uh, when Lancelot first gets the news that he has to get married. He does like a perfect imitation of of Stan Laurel's uh, weepy face, where he like <laughs> pulls his face and he like fake cries. Although, it, but it's like nine years before Laurel became famous. So, I don't. Maybe this maybe this this face that that Laurel used all the time was more of like a standard part of the nineteenth uh, century dramatic repertory than than yeah. I know. I, That's possible. I don't know, or maybe it's just a coincidence. Well, but, you know, this movie, you, you say that, this movie feels really ahead of its time, or at least, you know, it, you know, it, it has the silent film uh, trappings, which is, is great, fantastic, and all, all that stuff. But, yeah, um, all of these other elements make it seem like a movie that maybe is not ahead of its time, but it's kind of a movie that's kind of out of time. You know, it kind of, 
it kind of just exists, and I and I think it's 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 a really it's a really wonderful feature. Yeah, I mean, it's it it seems much more modern than than something like Caligari, but I, it 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 is kind of in keeping with uh, uh, Charlie Chaplin's The Immigrant, which came out at the same time. I know the the earliest film we talked about on the show was uh, was Ingeborg Holm by uh, Victor Seastrom, which was 1913, which is six years before this, but it 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 could have been a century apart. The the difference between the filmmaking from 1913 to, to 1916 or 1919, it just it feels like a whole other medium. Mm-hmm. Like, it really does. Lubitsch is the, just yeah. so much more you know energetic and alive, and it's not just you know standard shots. Although there, there is a lot of just kind of you know static framing, and the camera doesn't really move all that much. But just the the rhythm of the film is is so much more dynamic and. Even more so than than in yeah, even more so than in in Chaplin films from the same period. Like, mm-hmm. it, it's really fantastic. Yeah, and he does. You know, there are tons of great special effects going on in here. Um, you know, hilarious. Uh, he he gets so distraught that his hair turns white, and we literally see his hair like turning white. <laughs> um, as, yeah, he as, says he says something like this. Yeah, you've told me a hair raising tale, and then his hair. <laughs> literally raises <laughs> yeah um <laughs> which is just great so yeah i i think this movie's just just wonderful and it's great to see you know early early lubitsch um being so so much fun and uh exciting yeah this is this is the first of of lubitsch's silence that i've seen um i've seen most of his sound films um what about you yeah, I, I need to see more Lubitsch. I've only seen a, a few, and you know, um, as we talked about a, a, for a Christmas episode, um, "Shop Around the Corner" is my favorite, and yeah. uh, you know, I, I don't think that's going to change. But uh, but I do need to see more both of the the, the talkie stuff and uh, and these because this is a great introduction. This is the first of the silence I've seen too, and it's uh, it's quite fun. Yeah, de- definitely made me want to see more. Um, I, I'm kind of hit and miss on his Jeanette McDonald, Maurice Chevalier musicals. Like they're, yeah. But I, I really love his his uh, later '30s work, like like Trouble in Paradise and Design for Living, and then onto the Shop Around the Corner and Ninochka. Like those are all just fantastic movies. Well, I think a lot of these, the the silence, the Berlin stuff, is um, available on Amazon Instant. That's how I saw the doll, and I think you know, like a lot of Kino stuff, it's available on on that format. I don't know. I don't yeah, know about Netflix. Like, it, or anything. Yeah, it it is on on Netflix. Uh, that's that's how I watched it, and yeah, there's there's a lot of great uh, silent movies on Netflix, which you wouldn't know. If uh, you just let Netflix tell you what to watch, you have to actually go. <laughs> you have to actually go looking for them. Yeah, because Netflix is the worst. <laughs> well, that's our discussion of the doll. Let's hear um, a little more, Robin. This is um, probably my favorite song of hers off of the album Body Talk. It's called Fembot. I've got some news for you. Fembots have feelings too. You split. My heart in two Now what You gonna do
thanks, Robin. Those are the first two Robin songs I have ever heard, and I'm sure that I liked them quite a bit. <laughs> They're I fantastic. I haven't actually heard them yet. I'm going to cut them into the show later, and I bet I will like them, though, because I like things. Uh, next week <laughs> on the show is two movies that I am certain we are going to like. We're going to talk about, on the occasion of the release of, of George Clooney's The Monuments Men, we're going to watch the movie that seems to be about pretty much the exact same thing, John Frankenheimer's 1964 uh, war movie, The Train. And we're going to be pairing that with Robert Aldrich's 1973 film, Emperor of the North, with uh, one of our favorite actors, Lee Marvin. Lee Marvin, yeah. And Ernest Borgnine. And Ernest Borgnine. And, <laughs> and uh, one of the Carradines. I, I get them all mixed up. I, I, don't, I don't know which one this is, but he's a Carradine... Johnny. He's a Carradine, so I'm, I'm assume that he's great. <laughs> uh, that'll be the, the next episode of the show, which is not next week. It is two weeks from now. Uh, the week of February 9th is yes. when we will be recording that. Yes, yes, uh, yes. Uh, in the meantime, there's going to be a football game on February 2nd. I don't know if you've heard <laughs> anything about it, but the Seattle Seahawks will be playing the Denver Broncos in New York. Well, actually, New Jersey for the... Uh, NFL championship and on that same day in the city of New York playing at the Museum of the Moving Image is a brilliant bit of counter-programming by the folks over there in their See It Big Festival. Check this triple feature of musicals out. Meet Me in St. Louis, Gold Diggers of 1933, and topping it off, one of Mike's favorite movies, Pennies from Heaven. Oh, you're fucking kidding me. I am not. Oh. I told you before we started that my rep pick would make you want to buy a ticket to New York. Was I correct? Oh, my God. What the? Yes. Oh, my gosh. That's crazy. I really. Oh, man. All right. I need to I need to get the flu. You know, the, the problem is, is that everybody at work is going to call. I work that day. Uh, everybody's going to call in that day because they're going to have the football flu. Mm hmm. And I would call in with the Bernadette Peters uh, psychosis, <laughs> uh, but that's just unfair. Oh man, that's amazing, Sean. Yeah. Well, I I will always remember when we ran Pennies from Heaven for Metro Classics, and the second of the two shows that we ran was uh, <laughs> was uh, populated solely by a guy that got in on a free pass and a blind woman. <laughs> they both loved it, though. They did. Of course they did. It's the best movie ever. Well, if you're in Seattle, you're going to get another chance to catch one of my absolute favorite films uh, that's in contention for um, an Oscar. Uh, coming back to theaters for just a couple of shows um, on February 2nd at the Grand Illusion, they will be showing The Act of Killing um, at 2 p.m., which is uh, not only one of the greatest documentaries of the last few years, um, but you know, if it was in the best picture race, I would put my weight behind it at this point. Um, having not seen everything yet, but uh, the act of killing is absolutely fantastic, and uh, you should go see it if you haven't. Yeah, that, that's one of the the ones I definitely still need to see. I need to see that. I need to see Twelve Years a Slave. I need to see Blue Jasmine, and I really liked Blue Jasmine. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, Lindy did not care for it at all, but I really, really liked that movie. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm trying not to get too kind of overwhelmed with Oscar season. I mean, I don't have time for it for one thing, but, but those are the the ones I definitely want to make time to see before, 
the show at the end of the month. So I will not be going to see it on February 2nd at the Grand Illusion, though, because I will be watching football. Well, it's also playing February 16th um, at the same time, so you can go see it then. Yeah, that is a more likely possibility. <laughs> All right, well, with that, you can find us online at the georgesandersshow.blogspot.com. We're also on Twitter at geosandersshow and at the email, thegeorgesandersshow at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. We appreciate it. Have fun watching yeah. football world. <laughs> I'll be at home watching pennies from heaven and, uh, and being really, really happy. <laughs> Go Hawks. Just a kiss, a sigh is just a sigh. The fundamental things apply as time goes by. And when two lovers woo, they still say I love you. On that you can rely. No matter what the future brings As time goes by Moonlight and love songs Never out of date Hearts full of passion Jealousy and hate Woman needs man and man must have his mate That no one can deny It's still the same old story A fight for love and glory A case of do or die